Yes, wonderful. We are back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4. I do encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn there. Um, if you don't, there's probably one under a chair nearby, and your neighbor would be happy to help you get one. So, my name's Thomas, and I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview. Uh, it is my privilege, normally, to work with community groups and with our equipping classes and things like that, uh, but today I get the opportunity to preach to you from Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 14. Well, um, if you have ever been in a serious relationship, or really any kind of relationship, or if you have ever watched a romantic comedy, I'm very sorry, uh, you have noticed a certain phenomenon that happens kind of in every relationship as it progresses. There comes a certain point where you have to clarify the ambiguity. What are we? Are we using the L word? Love? I love you? You love me? Are you, what should I call you? Are you my boyfriend? Uh, feels a little juvenile. Are you my girlfriend? What, what, what are we? We gotta define the relationship. You gotta make things clear. It's sort of the, it's, it's what holds together the plot of every romantic comedy and it's what uh, you've probably noticed in your relationships. In today's passage, God wants to do just that with his people Israel. Now remember, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses, uh, God's prophet, is speaking to God's people at the foot of uh, the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham uh, now, we're, we're many years later, his descendants, the people of Israel, have escaped from Egypt and slavery. God has led them out. Uh, they came to the promised land. Uh, God said, go in, take the promised land. They disbelieved God. It was 11 days journey from Egypt to the promised land. They came, they failed, and God turns them back into the desert for 40 years until that generation is gone. And now we're back. God leads them back 40 years later to the foot of the promised land, and Moses uh, is speaking to this new generation and the series of sermons, that's really what Deuteronomy is, a series of Moses' sermons. Moses, 120 years old, standing, facing God's people and preaching to them. Uh, and the question that hangs in the air with this sort of second chance that the whole nation of Israel has is, what's going to be different this time? How will they be different from the generation before them? Will they be faithful or will they be faithless? And, especially in this passage today, will they be faithful to God's covenant? That's a word we don't use very much, but a covenant is a, it's another, uh, it's a kind of relationship. It's this mixture of law and love that probably the closest analogy you might have is in marriage. Um, we don't have a literal law for one another. We don't say, hey, you're not doing the rule that, you know, to your spouse, you're not doing this rule. Uh, it's more, it's, it's something different. It's not a contract. It's not, a, it's not just a friendship, it's something more. Um, but what, what it comes down to between Israel and God in this passage is figuring out the answer to three big questions about what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. First of all, what should we expect from God? Every relationship is like this. What should I expect from you? What should you expect from me? Duties and responsibilities, obligations and opportunities, rights, and responsibilities. What should we expect from God? What does God expect from us? And how are we supposed to accomplish it? Those three questions. And, and the, the main thing that's sort of overarching all of this and really over the whole series, because this passage today is so foundational to the entire book of Deuteronomy, it's really sort of the constitution of Deuteronomy, the founding document this passage today is this. Listen and live. Listen and live. This passage shows us what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God, like I said, by answering those three big questions. What do we do? 
Why do we do it? Help me, Lord, to speak only the things that you are saying to your church today. Open our ears, unstop our ears. Whatever is in there keeping us from hearing you, get it out of there. Open our hearts, make them soft in your hands, ready to be molded to your will. Don't let us harden our hearts to what you're saying. Help us to see you as you really are, not as we imagine you or as we hope you might be or wish you were, to see you as you really are, and to respond in faith. Help us to know, especially today, Lord, what it means to have a covenant relationship with you. And most of all, show us Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we want to answer three questions about what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. The first thing, what do we do? And it's very simple. Uh, we read there in verse 1, if you look down with me, it says, And now, O Israel, listen. Listen. Listen to the statutes and the rules I am teaching you. Listen. In a word, what do we do in a covenant relationship with God? Listen. Now, of course, uh, that doesn't just mean listen like you're listening to me right now. You hear the sound waves coming. They strike your eardrum, and it sends neurons and stuff. And you heard me. That's not, it's not quite that. It's much more. Listen. What does that mean? Well, the passage tells us two things that listening means. Uh, the first one we see in verse 2, right after verse 1. It says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Shall not add, you shall not take away from it. First thing that listening means is listening to the whole word, of God and nothing but the word. God's word, uh, theologians say, is sufficient. It gives us all we need to know. There are other things in the world that are helpful and good and useful, uh, but to be in a covenant relationship with God, what we need is his word, his, his word. Let God be God. That's what it means to listen to him. Let his word be his word. God has told us who he is in the Bible. We must always avoid the temptation to imagine what we would like God to be and then read that understanding into the Bible as we read it so that then when we find things that perhaps don't match with the way that we like, uh, they grow to irritate us or we ignore them or we push them to the side. We should not imagine what a perfect person or a perfect divine being would be like and then come to the Bible to see if that is what God is like. We should read the Bible and discover what a perfect divine being is like because that is who our God is. That's what it means to listen. Now, um, inevitably, this means we will find things in the Bible that do not mesh with the way that we think our own understandings, our, our uh, sensibilities, our cultural expectations. And what we need to do is bring those to the Lord and honestly say, I don't like this, <laughs> and let him deal with it. He will deal with you. He will help you. Um, in particular, I think we, we have to say, as we read through Deuteron Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we read about God sending his people, his conquering and invading army into the nations on the outskirts of the promised land, and uh, 
you know, essentially wiping these nations out. Um, we, that was sort of covered uh, last week, and it's in this week's passage up in Deuteronomy 3. We will cover it in much more depth in Deuteronomy 7 because it, it gives sort of explicit uh, instructions to Israel about what that looks like. But the first thing I'll say when you encounter things like this is to be sure about what the Bible is saying and make sure you're not misunderstanding. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 3, like I said, uh, we have Israel sent into the land Og of the Bashanites. Bashanites. If you say it fast enough, no one cares. Okay, Bashanites. And um, it would be easy for us to imagine that the, what, what's happening here is the big, bad Israelites, muscled up with machine guns, I guess, or whatever, are coming into Bashan and just wiping these people out, right, left and center, and they basically didn't have a chance, and they didn't even know it was coming, and they're just being really mean. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, when it, so note this first. It's not the big, strong Israelites versus the little, weak Bashanites. Read, um, if you go flip back to me, I don't know if you have to flip, but I don't. And in chapter 3, verse 11, we get this very strange comment about Og's bed. Okay. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Hmm. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? He's backing up his claim. Nine cubits was its length. That's 14 feet, about. And four cubits its breadth. It's six feet wide for one person, by the way, according to the common cubit. What's it saying? Well, it's saying that Og was a giant monster. Okay? Og, this is, so it's not David and Goliath with Israel being Goliath and David being the Bashanites. It's just the other way around. Israel has been wandering around in the desert, not training for war or building armored cities, state-of-the-art armored cities, which, by the way, that's another thing. When it says city, you and I imagine, right, New York City, Los Angeles, that's sort of what we're dealing with, a civilian population and so forth. Um, in fact, cities in, in ancient times were military outposts and establishments like that. So it's not these strong Israelites going in to conquer these poor, weak, you know, Bashanites. Um, it was just the opposite. Secondly, it wasn't without warning. Uh, the most proximate would be Rahab, um, who was in, in that land and had, you know, sheltered the spies of the Israelites and would have warned them 40 years earlier that the Israelites were coming, and so they had warning. Uh, not to mention Abraham, who when we see the call of Abraham back in Genesis 15, says, I'm going to bring your people back to the land of Canaan, but not until the sin of the Amorites is fulfilled. So God has been incredibly patient with them. Incredibly patient. And they were, I won't get into all of the details, but uh, the more you study it, and that's, I would recommend you study it, the more you realize this is not... Um, uh, sorry, that this was really a wicked nation. It was a, a place that was in rebellion against God. So that was my brief example of a suggestion that when you encounter things in the Bible that make your skin crawl, and you will, and I want to explain why that's actually a good thing, first of all, figure out what it's really saying. It might not be saying what you think it's saying. It might, and I'll talk about that now too. Um, the fact is God will never fit into our box, and that's very good news. That's very good news. There will always be something that kind of rubs us the wrong way that we don't quite like, uh, that if someone brought it up, we'd say, oh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't. Um, that is because the Bible is not a merely human document. If the Bible were just written by a certain people who had certain cultural expectations and certain, certain beliefs, then you would expect the Bible to sort of just be a cultural document, just like anything. 
Um, you read you know, other, other books of other religious faiths, and, and they sort of find their place in a certain niche of the world, and they pretty much stay there. The Bible has not been like that. The Bible got its start in, in the Middle East, and it went south and north, and it went to Africa first, and it went up into Europe, and it went across. We were sort of the last people to get a hold of it, and now it's going, and now it's exploding in China. It doesn't have a cultural home. There's no one on earth who reads the Bible and doesn't find something that doesn't quite fit with what they like. And by the way, the, the things that we find irritating, people across the globe think are the best things. And the things that we find irritating, and, and just the opposite. Okay, so why should our frustrations trump theirs? They shouldn't. The Bible is just not of this world. And the evidence of it is that it, does, it rubs us the wrong way. So it shouldn't make you go, oh, this is frustrating. It actually should make us think that's actually a good thing. Um, Thomas Jefferson, a well-known, you maybe have heard of him. Um, he, uh, he, he was a fan of Jesus, Thomas Jefferson, um, but not all of Jesus. He liked a lot of Jesus, but not all of it. He liked Jesus' ethics and many of his social teachings and things like that, um, but he didn't like, he, he was a deist. So he, he understood the world to have been created by God, like a clockmaker makes a clock, and then he sort of set it spinning and backed away, and therefore there's no supernatural reality to be found. And so we, when he read the Gospels, he liked the teachings of Jesus, but he couldn't palette the supernatural elements. And so he literally sat down uh, with a razor and with some glue, and he cut out the parts he liked, and he put them, and he created what's called the Jefferson Bible. You can still find this today. Um, now we sort of laugh at Thomas Jefferson and think, oh, can you imagine doing something like that? But if we're honest, there, there are parts of us that we want to not listen Right? Remember, this is what it means to listen, is to listen to the whole truth, to nothing but the truth. What would it look like for us to listen to the whole word, the whole word of God? Look at the whole Jesus. We can't have half of him. He loves us way too much to, to let us enjoy half of him and leave the other half out. If you're here, maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, I'm not really confident in the Bible and I'm not really sure about Jesus. And I have real questions. Well, we're not afraid of your questions. That's okay. We've been thinking some of the same ones. And uh, Christians, people just like you and, and me have been thinking about them for the last 2,000 years. So don't worry. Bring us your questions. We're happy to hear them. Christians have been thinking deeply about our faith for, for many, many years. I, I don't think you'll stump us. Maybe. But I hope you'll try. Okay. Um, if you're here and you're a believer, like I said, I, my urge to you is think about, you know, the person that I just spoke to, I don't know who it is here, who I want them to come with their questions. What question are you hoping they don't ask you? Go study that one. Find some answers. The Lord has answers for you. Second thing that listening means, listen, is what we do, listen, is in verse 6. It says, and this is very simple, Keep them and do them. He's talking about the commands of God. Keep them and do them. That will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the people. Very simple. Keep them and do them. What do we do? What does listening mean? When we say, ha, ah, he just wouldn't listen, we don't mean he wouldn't listen. We mean he wouldn't obey. He wouldn't submit. He would not do what was said. This is plain. Do what God says. Part of being in a covenant relationship with God, it is not an equal partnership. It is... We, we submit to him. We should both know, it says, keep them and do them. Keep them is referring to, you know them. You don't let them escape from your mind. 
Um, forgetting, especially in the Old Testament, uh, doesn't have to do with sort of like, I forgot my keys. Ah, forgot my keys. No, it's forgetting the words of the Lord. We, uh, God's word in us is like a, an organ that's been transplanted. We have to spend, you have to take these drugs the rest of your life to make sure that your body doesn't reject it. Um, God's word is like that. We have to keep putting it back in. We have to keep our body from rejecting it. We have to remind ourselves and remind ourselves and remind ourselves. We'll talk more about that in a second. We must keep them, and we must do them. I'm impressed when people know their Bibles really well, but I'm really impressed when they apply their Bibles really well. When they say, I read my word, and I realized I have to do this. I have to do this differently. God showed me that, that there's life to be had if I do this. What could it, it look like for you to listen to him, to listen to him, to keep them and do them? Um, pretty soon here in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we're actually going to take a little break for Easter, and then in the summer we'll come back to Deuteronomy. Uh, and when we get back into it, we'll be in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so one thing that you could do to listen to God and begin to practice what it's talking about here would be to memorize the Ten Commandments. There's ten of them. Easy. Uh, both memorize them and think deeply about them. Uh, for instance, here's the command, do not steal. Now, when God commands his people, do not steal, uh, there's also a sort of, with every negative command, there's also a positive impression, a, a vision of the good life. If, if do not steal shows us what human sinfulness looks like, that in our hearts we're prone to take from others, the positive vision is that we would people, be people who, rather than taking from others, we breathe out blessing and life into every place we are. We don't steal from our neighbor, we breathe out life into our neighbor, we bless our neighbor. Think deeply about them and apply them to your life. So memorize the Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe if you need more of a classroom atmosphere, maybe something that's a little bit more collaborative with other people or group, uh, we're, we're going to have men's and women's groups studying the Apostles' Creed, the ancient code document of our faith that's sort of each line of it being like a table of contents hyperlink that you can link it, uh, click on it, and s discover this massive treasury of Christian understanding of the world that we live in that's been used for centuries. Uh, we'll be studying the Apostles' Creed starting the week after Easter. You can sign up for that. Um, finally, I think the thing that you could do constantly and every week as you come into church would be this. Read the passage ahead of time. We send out on Friday. You'll get your email. If you, if you haven't signed up for that, you can sign up in the back, tell them, you know, or go to the website and just do it yourself. We send out what passage we're going to be teaching from and preaching from and hearing from. So you get it on Friday, read it on Friday or Saturday or Sunday morning before you come to church and start thinking about it. Put it into your life, put it into your heart, and the Lord will start working then. And then when you come on Sunday, you'll hear it proclaimed and God will speak to you then. And then perhaps you go to your community group or you speak about it with your family and you get to hear it again. We're meant to hear it more than once, not just me coming and saying it to you once and then it kind of leaves. It's, some, it's the ongoing pattern of our church that we're in the word together. So that's what it means to listen. First of all, that we, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that we don't add or take from God's word, we take him as he is. And second of all, that we simply follow his commands, we obey them. We know his commands and we obey them. Listen, that's what we do, what? Now why do we do it? Why do we do it? Now, this really follows from our first point, and we see it in verse 1. Oh, and now, O Israel, if you look down with me, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live. Listen and live. Just like any relationship has rights and responsibilities, obligations and opportunities, we must listen. And God's promise is that we will live. 
Now, just like with listen, uh, it means much more than ha you know, sound sounds hitting our ears. Live, what, what are we talking about there? It tells us two things. Why? Well, first of all, verse 3 tells us the reason that we will live and, or why we obey, why we listen, is because disobedience is deadly. Here's what verse 3 says. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are still all alive today. Now, this incident that, uh, that Moses is referring to here happened somewhere between, a, you know, a few days before he gave this message and a few months. Um, when they were coming into the Promised Land, they stopped at Peor, that's the place, and some of the people among the nation of Israel went after the Baal, which is a, a tribal religious deity of that land. And they committed idolatry. They went after that God. They turned from the God of Israel, the, the one true and living God, and they went after the Baal, the master, the Lord of Peor. And what happened was what naturally happens when you turn yourself from the source of life and the God of life and the author of life is you experience death. Death, in this case, literal physical death. And in fact, we, we have to admit that the fact that death has entered our world is the ultimate sign that we are a people and a place that is no longer in right relationship with God. And this is the curse of the covenant, death. So we follow God, first of all, because we get life, which very simply put is just the opposite of death. The curse of the covenant is death. More on that in a minute. The second reason why we do it, why, is because we get to know God. Verse 7 tells us this. Look with me there. Um, this is, or, or sorry, verse 6. Oh, wait. No, I'm confused. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. Okay, verse 7. And this is Moses. Moses is sort of has an imaginary onlooker looking at the nation of Israel, and this is what that onlooker would say. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Wow. We get to know God. Listen and live. Covenant relationship with God is not having a far-off person who is vaguely interested in you and vaguely powerful. A covenant relationship with God is a face-to-face what, what God himself calls a friendship, which almost feels, doesn't that feel a little wrong? We can be friends with God. The God of the universe, high and holy, mighty, all-powerful, lifted up, he knows everything about you, and he wants to know you. And you can know him, actually. Actually know him. He wants to relate to you personally. Not just vaguely and communally, although he, he wants to interact communally with us. He wants to know you. You. Jill. <laughs> Wyatt. Aiden. Cindy. He wants to know you. And he wants to reveal himself to you. And he wants to share himself with you. Now, for us today, I think Parkview has a wonderful, wonderful heritage of emphasizing the blessing and the necessity of having a personal relationship with God. So maybe for some of us, this is like, yeah, right, 
Yep, we know. Personal relationship with God. He knows me, I know him, that's great. But for the time that this was written, Deuteronomy 4, and the time that Moses was speaking into, this idea was radical, if not offensive. That, that God related to people on, in such a way, with such nearness. The way that, that ancient people related to the gods uh, was always sort of experimental. You never really knew who your God was, what did he want from you. Uh, they were sort of tribal, based in certain locations. Uh, you didn't know. So when something bad started happening in your life, you would, just sort of, you would pray to the God of that land, maybe, or to, to some God. You didn't really know what was going wrong, but you knew you had offended someone or something. And so you would just pray. You would say, please help, get, I don't know, have mercy on me. Um, you never knew where you stood. There was this sort of ancient anxiety within these people that they didn't know where, where they were, where they stood. Am I a good person? Am I doing what's right? I, I can't know. Uh, there was a Sumerian prayer that was found in Nineveh in the 7th century BC. Well, it wasn't found there. It was found more recently, but it was written in the 7th century BC. And, and it sort of summarizes this ancient anxiety. It says this, O God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs. Great are my sins. I don't know what I've done wrong. I don't know what sin I've committed. A God, whoever he is, has punished me. I'm miserable. I'm blindfolded. I can't see Turn toward me, merciful God, as I implore you. Doesn't that kind of break your heart? Oh God, whoever you are, I don't know what I've done. Help. Now, the, the idea of, this I think should remind us, that the idea of God as lawgiver, that being in covenant with God means receiving, submitting to, obeying his law, it might bother you, but I hope that this point will remind you that if you don't accept God's word as your authority, it's not as if you can choose between God's word and just sort of being a free person, not having no moral constraints and just being sort of a free thinker in the world. Um, you will inevitably end up with a different version, a worse version, a more constraining and a, and a destructive version of God's law. Here's what I mean. Uh, Amy Poehler, anyone heard of Amy Poehler? Yeah, Parks and Rec, the um, not The Office. Anyway, she's kind of famous. In a New York Times uh, Magazine interview this last week, she said, when you're up around 50, you're always a little out of breath from outrunning the voices, whether they be your own or society's, a certain feeling of your irrelevance. You have to outrun them or do some art of war stuff and turn around and surrender to them. The most enlightened being can't avoid them. What's she talking about? You can't outrun these voices in your head. And for her, I mean, she's a famous person, so what's the voice that's constantly chasing her down that she always has to stay one step ahead of? The feeling of irrelevance. Have you, have you felt this sensation that you are just never really doing enough? I, I can never quite know if I'm a good person. Have you felt the need, this unending anxiety, this need to compete, to unendingly pursue the next experience, the next achievement, the next accomplishment, the next compliment, the next like, the next whatever it might be? We are inherently religious in our hearts. We need a law. We need something, someone, a voice from outside of ourselves to tell us that we're good, to tell us that we're enough. 
what, what's Amy Poehler saying? What's she saying? Who, who are these voices in her head that she's trying to outrun? What, you know what she sounds like? What does it sound like she's saying? Oh God, whoever you are, have mercy on me. The ancient anxiety that this passage describes is not all that ancient, is it? You were made in the image of a law-giving God. And you cannot run away from it. I hope Amy can't. And you won't be able to either. It is not a choice between God or sort of vague humanistic freedom. The voices in the back of our, your head, it, they won't go away until another voice comes in to take their place. Those voices are proof that God is pursuing you. They're his mercy to you. And if you try to prove yourself according to the law of those voices in your head, they will crush you. And I should mention also that if you try to justify yourself by God's law, it will also crush you, unless you hear this last point. We've learned what we do in covenant relationship with God. We've learned why we do it. Now, let's see, this passage also tells us, don't lose hope, it also tells us how we do it. How can we listen and live? It says this, how we do it, uh, in verse 9, 14, 9 through 14, it says that how we do it is by remembering and declaring God's words and works. Declaring God's words and his works. There is an organic unity between God's words and his works. Read verse 9 with me. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, the works, that is, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known by speaking them, make them known to your children and your children's children. And in verse 10 and following, it goes to explain the Exodus and God speaking to the people of Israel at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai. How do we do it? God's words and God's works, both di just different ways that God reveals himself to us in space and time, the ways that he reveals himself to us. And one of the main ways that God intends for us to remember his words, to listen to them and live, is by God's people reminding one another. So simple. First, it, it mentions in the context of family. To tell your children. Tell your children's children. The older ones have a responsibility to the younger. But we should remember the words of Jesus, who when his family came and he was in the temple and they thought he was causing trouble, his mother and his brother, and they came and said, Jesus, get out of there. And what did Jesus say? Who is my mother and my brother and my sister? The one who does the will of God. And so for us in the church, we, we do think of the family because that is an authority structure God has given, but we also think of one another, brother, sister, and even our neighbor who doesn't know Christ, who according to the definition of Jesus and the story of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is anyone who God brings across our path. The world, part of you, has gone wrong. Terribly wrong. Maybe you've noticed. <laughs> God created our world good, but sin entered. And every bit of pain and sorrow and disease and death and loss is an echo of the fact that we have broken our relationship with God. Our world is displaying all the symptoms of disconnection from our creator. And God intends to fix it through your mouths. Through you speaking God's word to your neighbor, whether they be your literal brother, okay, 
No, the kids left, but I see one. To your brother from another mother, or to uh, your brother in Christ, sister in Christ. I hope, by the way, I, I hope that I have made clear throughout the, through the first, you know, 25 minutes here, that covenant faithfulness means knowing and obeying God. I've made that clear. Okay, but in fact, what we see here is that covenant faithfulness is not complete, is not done with knowing and doing God's words. Covenant faithfulness means proclaiming God's words. This is how God plans to change the world, how he plans to transform the world, through the finished work of his son in our mouths, through all of God's words, his counsel, and the way that he has revealed himself in space and time, through his words and his works, us proclaiming them through words, right? In fact, you have a part to play. You, you, you. You, God has been preparing you, exactly you, for a thousand generations in either direction of your family tree to bring exactly you to this exact place, sitting in that exact seat where he knew he would be sitting. And he has put words in your mouth to speak and through them. Words of reminder, words of challenge, words of encouragement and exhortation, words, just questions, prayers. It could be many things. So all of the ways that we minister God's words to one another. This is how we be a covenantally faithful people to God. We need you, exactly you, to be, that is, a transmitter of God's word. A proclaimer of God's word. You, each of you, is not meant to be simply a repository of Bible facts. You were not made to be a reservoir of God's word, but a river. You are meant to take it somewhere not just store it up. You are designed to gather it and move it. And by the way, that's not, that's not our genius strategy here at Parkview, that we sort of thought up and we did all the market research and decided, you know what, this is a great way to do it. We've gotta get participation up. We've gotta, whatever. No, this is the way, he made you this way. He made you this way. You start doing it, you'll find out. He, he made me this way. And this, if I'm gonna be completely honest, I think this is an area where we, and I'll point at myself first, I, we have failed you as your leaders. For too long, we have treated you like reservoirs of God's word rather than rivers. It is, and if we're going to have a time of confession, I'll have my own personal time of confession. It's easier for us. It requires a lot less of my time and effort. I can just stand up here and tell you, I'll tell you all the stuff, I'll be the expert, you guys honor me, you know, and then you come back next week, I'll tell you more stuff. And I'll fill you up, fill you up with words. And you can come back next week and it'll be great. It makes me feel like I'm sort of earning respect and significance when, I'm, when I do all the work. And I ask very little of you. But it makes for an atrophied church. We need to flex this muscle again. Parkview will be a vibrant and healthy and God-honoring church to the degree that we embrace this responsibility. Here are three ways that this might look for us to do it. First of all, and you guys do this really well, but I'll just remind you of it. Stay after church. This is one of your primary contexts for speaking and encouraging God's word through, through or God's people through his word. Um, stay after church. Uh, meet someone new. Head on a swivel. You're not here just to look up here. You're here to look around, right? 
So come to church with intentionality to be here to proclaim God's word. It could be as simple as going up to someone, introducing yourself, going up to someone you already know and asking them a question. What did you learn? What are you learning about Christ? What are you learning in the Bible right now? Here's what I'm learning. Secondly, it could look like reaching out to a fellow community group member or another member of the church and just texting them, email them, call them, and just encourage them from the Bible, something that you're learning. Um, and finally, I mentioned the family context. This is sort of the, the primary context, one of the primary contexts for making disciples is in their family. Um, read the Bible together. If this is totally new for you, or even you know, in your roommates, with you and your roommates, read the Bible together. Uh, if you've never done it before, I my suggestion would just be to keep it simple. Open something, something that's fairly simple, like the book of Ephesians or Philippians, and just take five minutes to read just a few verses of it together and ask, what does this teach us about God? And what would it mean for us to really listen to it? What would it mean to listen to it? But we will be totally lost with just the how-to if we don't miss this here, if we miss this here. We must remind one another of God's words, but we also must remember God's works. And if you hear nothing else, listen here today. God says that for Israel to trust his words in the future as they enter the promised land and the mission that God has for them then, the, the way that they will keep in covenant faithfulness is by looking back. He says, remember, keep your soul diligently, remember. And then he describes the events of the Exodus, the events where they stood at Mount Sinai and all the powerful experiences. He says, the things your eyes have seen, you were eyewitnesses, he says, to these things. For Israel, they look back to God's faithfulness in the past. How could they be sure as they listen to God today? How could they be sure? And we're wondering the same thing, aren't we? If, if we are really going to listen to him, to do what he tells us to, even when it hurts, how will we know that we will have life on the other side of painful obedience in particular? God points to the Exodus with his people. He says, remember Mount Sinai? Remember the 10 plagues when I brought you out of Egypt? Remember uh, the, the terrible thunder and fire at Mount Horeb when I revealed myself to you in my words? Remember how I led you through the Red Sea? If in the future you ever wonder whether I love you, Remember when I rescued you out of slavery before you ever did a lick of obedience for me? If in the future, if you ever wonder whether I'm powerful to save, remember Egypt, That's that military stronghold, that world power that I led you out of with water on your left and your right, and you turn around and watch them drown in the sea. Israel, Moses says, can trust God's covenant because it's based on God's faithfulness in the past. And God is a man of his word. But we know something, Parkview, that they, they didn't. They couldn't. A better covenant was coming. A new covenant. And, and it, too, offered life to those who listened to God's words. But Jesus was the ultimate word from God, the ultimate revelation of God. Hebrews 1 says it's God, Jesus has shown us exactly what God is like. He is the ultimate covenant Lord, the ultimate one we are in covenant relationship with. He doesn't just point us back to the Exodus or to the conquest of Canaan to prove that his words are true for us today, that if we listen to him, we will indeed live. We can trust God's word because God's word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And although Jesus Christ was the ultimate example to faithfulness to God's covenant, the curse of the covenant, death, fell upon him. 
Not because he had disobeyed the covenant, but because we do. Jesus experienced the curse of the covenant so that covenant breakers like you and me can have life. Life everlasting. Jesus is the true and better Moses who holds out life if you will only listen today. Consider this love of Christ. Consider all of the ways that we might proclaim this word and work to one another and to a watching world today. We remember, uh, for instance, as we practice communion, when Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He wants you to remember. He wants you today to look back to the day when he died for you and then God was faithful to his word, raising him from the grave, and trust him and listen and live. Listen and live, part few. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Deuteronomy 4. We thank you that if we listen to you, if we will submit to learning the way of Christ, if we submit to his law, to his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light, then you will give us life everlasting. Not only in the sense of the world to come, where you will raise us from the dead to new life forever, but in the everyday little micro deaths that we must die in order to live with Christ. Teach us that you are trustworthy, Lord. Imprinted on our hearts only by your spirit coming into our lives can we really see that your promises are true. You're faithful to your word. You're a man of your word. Help us to believe. Help us to listen. Help us to live. Pray all this in your son's precious name for his glory. Amen. Amen.